Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. So... Turn up your Walkman, loosen that scrunchie, and get ready to talk 80s with your host, Lindsay Parker. Hi, I'm Lindsay Parker from Yahoo Entertainment, and welcome to another awesome episode of Totally 80s. We love hearing from you, so why not take a second to follow us at Totally 80s on Facebook and Instagram, or email us your comments and show ideas to podcast at totally80s.com. And the show idea we have today, I am especially excited about. It is Best Songwriters of the 80s, a discussion of the people often behind the scenes who wrote your favorite hits of the 1980s. And joining us for this epic discussion are two super star songwriters who probably written some of your favorite hits of this current decade. So first of all, we have a returning guest, someone who was actually on our Duran Duran episode way back when and dared to suggest how Rio could be improved and was actually right. This man has written or produced massive songs for Panic at the Disco, One Direction, Katy Perry, Ringo Starr, Def Leppard from the 80s, Carol King, Weezer, Blink-182, Billy Idol, another 80s icon, and of course, my favorite, I buried the lead, Bad Ronald. And he just released his memoir, 21 Hit Wonder, flopping my way to the top of the charts. Welcome back, Sam Hollander. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. The honor is truly uh, Mutual. It's mutual. Yeah. It's mutual. Well, the honor is going all the way around because I can't believe how much talent I've managed to harness for this episode alone. Because also joining me is a mega talent who has written massive songs for perhaps you've heard of them. Imagine Dragons, Selena Gomez, Gwen Stefani, DNCE, Halsey, Justin Bieber, uh, Lady Gaga, Fall Out Boy, and many more. First time guest to the show, Justin Trancer. Hello. Hi. Hello. I'm so happy to have both of you on today. Have you guys met each other? Surely you've crossed paths with yes, all of the, the gold and platinum between you guys. Yes. You know what? <laughs> Honestly, like we're brothers from the same mind. I'm blind. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously, besides having tons of, you know, of hits to your collective credit, I think one of the reasons I wanted to have you guys on your expertise is one of the things I think you have in common. I'll let you guys tell me if I'm wrong, is I definitely hear 80s influences in at least some of your songs, certainly in things like Justin, obviously your your previous band, Semi Precious Weapons, and, and Monoskin, and obviously uh, Panic at the Disco for you, Sam, and, and the list goes on. So before we get into talking about the actual best songwriters of the 1980s, I wonder if you guys could maybe cite some of your work that you think kind of really is inspired by the decade of the 80s. Take it, Justin. I mean, the the first cut I ever had that a, a big artist recorded, it wasn't the first one that ever came out because uh, it was Kelly Clarkson, a song called Nostalgic. She got pregnant, and so the album got pushed back many years. But so it was the first song I ever had recorded by a big artist, and it was a song called Nostalgic. 
appropriate for what we're talking about today. Very appropriate title. And it is very, very 80s. The production still sounds 80s. The production of the demo was even more 80s. And it was very much inspired by that sort of like emotional, not full on power ballad, but like missing you, you know, which my favorite version of that song is Tina Turner, but obviously it's not the original song. Like it was very much inspired by that era of like emotional songs, vulnerable emotional songs with a beat. Like that David Foster, Diane Warren kind of thing. Well, not as dramatic as that more on like the (laughs) more, which by the way, I worship that all of yeah, that that same. was not a cut i mean diane warren is the one of the greatest to ever do it no matter what decade as we will be discussing yeah, <laughs> yeah. for sure but yeah that dreamy but emotional realm that the 80s did so well that was my that, that's probably the most 80s thing i've ever had and then also though janelle monet i wrote the song make me feel mm-hmm. oh that was so dope that was it, you yes oh, look at you thank you <laughs> Tranter, let me tell you something. Tranter is a beast. Might be my favorite in the game. So I'm wow. That is way too nice. No, you're an exceptional writer and you can dabble in multi-genres and completely own them and you're an absolute beast. So the honor is completely mine. Thank you. Once I started writing songs with and for other people, it's not about me at all. So it does make me very easy for me to like switch genres because like mm. I'm not I'm not in charge, you know. But yeah, make me feel gentlemen, it's very much of the Prince 80s world. And you know, before he sadly passed, Janelle and Prince are friends, and Prince gave our song his blessing. Wow. Which is pretty, pretty crazy. Wow. Really crazy. But yeah, so that one is very, very 80. I think those are my two most 80s cuts that I have for sure. Amazing. So Sam, what about you in terms of the 80s? Like I mentioned Panic at the Disco. I hear it. Even some 70s and what they do. I wasn't alive in the 80s. So (laughs) it's weird. Like, you know, I'm a Gen Z. So (laughs) I'm just I'm just rapidly aging on some Benjamin Button stuff. But um, no, you know, the funny thing about me in the 80s is actually growing up in the 80s. I'm a fan of tempo. Mm. And so for my daughter, she's sort of uh, when Stranger Things happened, she wanted to articulate that 80s thing. Right. So she asked me specifically, she said, can you please give me a playlist of everything that was, you know, you were listening to at the time? So I went deep. Right. Every single song of that era was between 120 and 190 BPM for me. You know, it was the upper end of the Smith's catalog all the way through the Echo and the Bunnymen double time stuff and everything that was synth pop. And so for me, it's the foundation of everything I do. When I had a moment doing uh, pop punk, everything sat between 150 and 170 BPM because that's how I hear music. I'm not somebody you call for a ballad. I don't hear ballads that way. I will always try to go double time with them. So I specifically, I'm really into that 80s pulse. It's so innately part of my DNA as a writer. One thing, Sam, I wanted to say, I don't think you wrote this song. I think you just produced it, but probably one of the most 80s pop punk things you did was Shake It by Metro Station, which is an epic song. Yeah, I pretty shake it. And that whole album, when I met those kids and they were 17 year olds, you know, what I adored about them was they were just lost children of the 80s who really had no frame of context for it. You know what I mean? They weren't. It's not that they were, you know, sort of uh, 80s stands and that, that that was everything that they connected to. It just magically somewhere in their wiring, they discovered that thing. 
And so I fell in love with them. I thought it was so rad. Well, kids are still discovering whether it's through Stranger Things or, you know, we yeah. did we just did a whole Kate Bush specific episode of Totally 80s because of that. You know, just start with getting into the actual, we already sort of mentioned a few like Prince and Diane Warren and David Foster, but what are like some of the big, the, the 80s goats for you in terms of songwriting? Either of you could go first. You want to kick, can I kick it off? You better kick it off. Go. I'm so excited. I did a little thing at the Bourbon Room last week for my book release. I did a, and the two nights later, Holly Knight did her book there. I Am the Warrior is her book, which, you know, it's because she wrote that song by yes. Scandal. And I have never met Holly Knight, but I shout her out profusely in my book because I was a massive Mike Chapman and Nikki Chin fan. Chapman Sam, and Chin that was the- on my list. That's who I was going to say next was Chin Chapman. We are of the same mind. Oh my God. Although they would be on the totally 70s podcast more so. Exactly. It's 70s leading, but Chapman then threads into the 80s. He connects, he makes the spider record with Holly Knight. And then suddenly you uh born out of that relationship. You have Scandal the Warrior. And Emotion's Obsession, Tina Turner's Better Be Good. And I would like to point out that An Emotion Obsession was co-written by someone who has been on this podcast before, Mr. Michael DeBar. Michael DeBar, of course. Of course. And Pat Benatar's Love is a Battlefield and Invincible. Devices Hanging on a Heart Attack, which is very deep cuts. And my probably my favorite of the bunch, eh, not my favorite, but up there, John Waits Chain. Oh my God, we're the same Spider. person. I was literally yes. about to say, because someone was, you know, Justin mentioned Missing You by John Waite, which is a great song, but Change is the, is the John Waite song for me. Yeah, so I feel like people sleep on Holly Knight. She's like a Hall of Fame writer who I don't think people understand that in the 80s, she was the soundtrack of every single summer to me. Like Holly Knight's writing was so unbelievably distinctive and Warrior- it's a, that's the holy grail. The warrior is perfect. Holds up against anything. She did some Aerosmith songs too, right? When like Aerosmith started employing a lot of kind of outside songwriters for their like late 80s coming. And she did like Ragdoll. I thought she did Ragdoll. That's not really my song, mm-hmm. but I back it, you know, but she she did a huge run. <laughs> You know, that's fine. <laughs> well, I'm so happy you mentioned Shin Chapman, Nikki Chin, Mike Chapman, because they were actually, like I said, if we were doing a totally 70s podcast, we would probably do just a podcast on them because they pretty much were the, the architects of the glam sound with like the suite yeah. and all these bands. Justin, are you familiar with with those guys? I with, am, with yes. The, I mean, you know, it, it obviously max out when they uh, when they write Mickey, right? Well, the thing is, since this is 80s, I want to say they wrote Kitty by a band called Racy. I didn't know that. Okay, yeah, here's the thing. I don't wow. know if you've been following that Tony Basil finally got some royalties for it or because there was a song, you can find it on YouTube or whatever. It was a band called Racy, R-A-C-E-Y. And they did kind of a limp version that was like, hey, Kitty. And it was called Kitty. And then she did it as Mickey. It was obviously a massive hit in like 19, I believe 1982. And it's a 40-year-old song now. But she's the part that added the cheerleader chant to it like oh mickey you're so fun like the original the original version did because she was into cheerleading she was a cheerleader when she was a kid and she obviously had a dance background and the video was cheerleaders real cheerleaders so she added that which is like for most people the song right like that wasn't in the original version but she didn't have co-writing credit on it until like this year like this year literally i know right justin your mouth is you look shocked because that's well, the whole- but Justin Justin's not shocked. It's the music business. Fair, but you know now, <laughs> but now we're on the opposite side of the music business where 
everyone gets writing credit. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. oh my God, that's so true. Oh, oh, you mean the guy who did the snare? And you, oh, the you, snare is awesome. I love snare. That guy's great. Such a great songwriter, that snare. That snare, snare is amazing. That snare on two and four, revolutionary. Definitely get, definitely get pub. Yeah. But Chin Chapman, although they were more like the 70s goats, yeah, as you mentioned, they actually, I believe, co-wrote Better Be Good to Be with Holly Knight. Yes. And, and they did Heart and Soul by Huey Lewis. And then, you know, they wrote the original song that became Mickey. So they they had a nice little wow. 80s run. But Holly Knight, definitely. I want to read her book next. Yeah, but let's like focus on my book right now. Okay. <laughs> 21 Hit Wonder, flopping my way at the top of the charts. Available where all good books are, are sold. At the time of this taping, it's coming out today. Congratulations. Thanks. Wow, man. cool. Very, I didn't very that's cool. so cool. So Justin, who like is your kind of holy grail songwriter from that decade? Before I get to my holy grail songwriter of the decade, there's two. I just learned, I didn't know that my queen, Cindy Lauper, who I think is one of the most exciting and special artists in the history of the world. She still excites me listening to She's So Unusual. That album is literally perfect. I didn't know that Girls Wanna Have Fun was the, was the cover. It was Robert Hazard. Robert Hazard. I had no idea. Have you heard Robert Hazard's version? Because it's very different perspective when a man is singing and the lyrics are a bit different as well. It's a really, I don't know anything about him. So if I, 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 I this is a very uneducated opinion. Um, but so I was in a session with Chapel Roan, who, if you don't know her, she's an amazing new artist, very much inspired by the 80s. She's fantastic. And Dan Nigro, who made the Olivia Rodrigo album. And they, Dan Nigro is the one who showed, played me his version and pointed out that it was a cover. And I had no idea. And I was like, this song is a really kind of creepy when a man sings it. Like, this is... This- it's kind of more from the perspective of, like, the guy comes home and his mother, you know, comes home in the morning light. And the mother is like, when are you going to settle down with a nice girl and stop, you know, slutting around or whatever and having these one night stands? And he's like, oh, mom, these days girls just want to have fun. Like they don't want to get married and and settle down. They just want to slut around as well. And, you know, it's I mean, maybe I guess that's a sex positive way for me to. Yeah, that's what they but it's it's definitely different. It's not a feminist anthem when he's doing it. Yeah, I, I feel like it might have been an outgrowth of the next good girls don't. You know, it feels like it's a cousin of the same era. It feels like, oh, that kind of worked. That was like a half a hit. Let's go for it. You know? How far apart were they, by the way? How far apart in time were they? I was going to say a year and a half to two years. Really? That quick? Cool. Yeah. But Justin, check out Escalator of Life. That is some real, that's deep 80s fun. That was sort of, really, that was cool. the soundtrack of like my sixth or seventh grade. It was great. So it did. I looked it up and the original Girls Is What I Have Fun came out in 1979. And like Cindy Lauper okay. was like 83, 84. Yeah, yeah. All right, so uh, later. It was, wasn't that far apart. But yeah, she's had some great songwriters too. She's had um, Steinberg and Kelly. My my holy grail of the 90s or of the 80s sorry one of them was going to be billy steinberg i mean yes tom kelly when you look at right exactly but two of them together when you look like a virgin true colors eternal flame so emotional whitney houston and then it i, I drove all night was still in the in the 80s i touched myself which is oh my god that's my karaoke go-to song yeah. that was the 90s but I mean, we it's, it's we got to consider ah, it and then it's and close then, enough and then this is definitely 90s, 94, The Pretenders Stand By You. But if you look at like, so the decade from 84 to 94. That was a golden era for this Fucking guy. domination. They, they ran the table and Hearts Alone would be in there too. Hearts Alone would be there too, yeah. I mean, that's crazy. 
No, they, they were unstoppable. Yeah. I agree with you. Like, they're tough to beat. I did want to mention Diane Warren because, you know, she of just course. finally got, even though a lot of her bigger songs were more recent in the 90s and, and 2000s, but she did just get the Oscar, Lifetime Achievement Oscar, after being nominated, I don't even, I think 13 times. She was 13. Like, Susan Lucci of the Oscars. And her first nomination for an Oscar was Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now from Mannequin, which was 1987. And I did the best interview <laughs> with her. I did the best interview with her this year for, for Yahoo when the anniversary of Mannequin, which, you know, is a national holiday, came out. And, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah, that was your first Oscar nomination. She goes, yeah, I got an Oscar nom for the movie about the guy fucking the mannequin. That was a perfect way for Diane Warren. Lindsay, we all start someplace. We yeah. do. But in the 80s, she had, if I could turn back time, by Cher, the best song on Millie Vanilli's album. I don't care who sang it, but Blame It On The Rain. Blame it on the Rain. Ghost Town by Cheap Trick, when they started kind of having a comeback with outside songwriters. I Get Weak by Belinda Carlisle. Love Will Leave You Back by Taylor Dane. Rhythm of the Night by DeBarge. That's what I've been waiting for you to say. I wanted to hear the DeBarge. And I, When I See You Smile by Bad English, speaking of John Wayne again. Sure. So, so you know, she, she and she is the queen. Some of the songs I mentioned are more upbeat songs like Rhythm of the Night, but she is the queen of the power ballads. But someone I really wanted to talk about because we're talking about, you know, soundtracks. Obviously, he had a huge run in the 70s and he's done other stuff besides soundtracks, but just the 80s alone and just movie songs alone. Giorgio fucking Marauder. Hello. Yes. Oh, come on. Hello. Let me let me just read the list. Drop it. Drop that mic. It's relatively chronological, but like Call Me by Blondie from American Gigolo. Of course, Flashdance. From Top Gun, Take My Breath Away, and Danger Zone. And by the way, wow. side, side note, Kenny Loggins was also a sign uh, soundtrack goat because he he wrote Footloose. Of course. Playing with the boys from Top Gun. Can't forget that. I'm all right from Caddyshack. Caddyshack. But back, but back to uh, back to Giorgio. So Flashdance, Take My Breath Away, Danger Zone. The Electric Dreams movie soundtrack. Love Kills well, from Metropolis, which was like Freddie Mercury's first solo song. The Foxes soundtrack. That's 1980 accounts. Cat People, David Bowie, Putting Out Fire, Gasoline. And then a song that before Kate Bush came around was like kind of the hit out of the Stranger Things world, Never Ending Story by Lamal. Right. That's all the Giorgio Moroder. The fact that wow. he's not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. When I went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ceremony this year, when Duran Duran, who Sam and I have discussed at length, everyone should go check out that, that version of Totally 80s, that episode. But when I asked Duran Duran, who do you want to see get in next? They all they all had good answers. Simon LeBond said Susie and the Banshees. Roger Taylor said Japan. I'm sorry, Roger Taylor's probably not going to happen, but it was a good choice. Japan? The band Japan, not the country. Wow, deep cuts. Nick Rhodes said New York Dolls. I, I agree. I voted for him. But John Taylor said Giorgio Moroder. And I had to do a double take for a second and went, he's not in, like in yeah. any way. And he wow. just was like the soundtrack to my life, quite literally. I just mentioned things that were the soundtrack. So he and then, you know, Kenny, you know, when we're talking about movie stuff, because there were so many great music movies in the 80s. And we've done actually a soundtrack episode of Totally A's People Could Listen To. And Georgia Moroder got props in that episode as well. So that's that's those are two. Well, I guess I said three. So I'm going to turn it back over to you guys. Can, can I go deeper cuts? Absolutely. That's what we're all about here. I was thinking about this at length, you know, and I'm biased because he's a Facebook friend. And um, here's that name you dropped. 
No, and we exchanged <laughs> we exchanged one message. It was brief. Seemed like a nice fellow, Narda Michael Walden. Okay, I know that name, but tell tell us who Narda Michael Walden is. Truly, the sound of R and B in the mid to late eighties. Aretha Franklin, who's zooming who and Freeway of Love. Ooh. Jermaine Stewart's We Don't Have to Take Our Clothes Off, co-written with Preston Glass. Enough said. Whitney Houston's How Will I Know. Oh, shit. Stacey Lattisaw and Johnny Gill, Perfect Combination. Perfect Combination. <laughs> and uh, most importantly, in the deepest of the cuts, Clarence Clemens, You're a Friend of Mine with Jackson Brown. And he's a drummer as well, right? Yeah, and he played with, uh, what, Mahavanishu or somebody along the lines. I might have played with Miles Davis and Jeff Beck also. He's a heavy, heavy musician from the Bay. But for a while, he was the sound of sort of R&B pop. And he was so muso, but so crafty. He's a beast. And I can say that I've exchanged a message with him. What did it say? Can you can we slide into your DMs and see what you guys uh, said? I think so. In all fairness, I believe he added me, which is an important note. I got the friend request and I didn't think it was real. And we responded. So I, I instantly when somebody gives me a friend request and I'm a fan, I get all excited. And so I hit him and I said, hey, man, something like that. You know, I'm a writer, blah, blah, blah. And he said, send me your poetry. Send me your poetry. And that's where the conversation died. But you know what? The truth be told, it could always get regenerated. It's been a decade. But, you know, I I just the whole time I thought to myself, this guy, he is a beast of a talent. Wow. Wow. Amazing. And all those songs like, you know, we're all learning stuff like who wrote what, you know, do you think nowadays, obviously, the Internet didn't exist in the 80s or the 90s, really, in the way it does now. Do you think people are more aware of like, who writes stuff now, like, oh, Max Martin wrote that or whatever. Like in the 80s, I didn't, I always assumed, I quite literally assumed that whoever was singing the song or whoever the artist was, were the writers. And I was not aware of all, a lot of the people we're talking about now were the people really making the magic. I think it's a little bit of both now. Like the super duper music fans have access to that information so quickly and so easily. So they, they know but I still think the average person, you know, before the pandemic, when I would take a lift everywhere, people would ask, well, what do you do? Where am I dropping you off? What is this place? Is this a studio? You know, like I read a New York Times article and it said, like, if you have a really cool job and think that, like, you're too cool to tell the quote unquote average person what your job is, then you're an asshole. So I always <laughs> like, oh, <laughs> so I always tell them, like, you know, Oh, I write music and knowing it's going to lead to a conversation. I'm like, well, I don't want to be an asshole. So let's have the conversation. Right. And when it would be, Oh, what songs did you write? And it it was definitely the average person is still in shock that whatever pop star isn't not only that, you know, cause some of obviously a lot of great pop artists that we work with do co-write, but they couldn't even believe that they co-write. They just are assuming that every pop star is alone in their room and then maybe a producer helps them record it. The music fans now are very aware and they know everything. And I watch them, you know, when I like stupidly go on Twitter once a month, which I normally don't, but like you watch them fight and I get tagged in in fan disagreements of like, no, look, Justin Tranner said in this article that so-and-so does write their own music. Justin, back us up while they're fighting with other fans. Wow. It's fucking crazy. Don't go on Twitter if you're a songwriter. It's just hell. But um, <laughs> so I think the super fans have so, such cool access to information. 
I will say for me, when I was in the 80s, I, I remember very clearly an interview where Debbie Gibson talked about how she wrote everything. Mm-hmm. And at six years old, I thought that was so fucking cool and became an immediate Debbie Gibson, like super fan. And that was the first time that it registered in my brain that somebody was even writing a song. But mm. it didn't, it, you know, because you're young, you don't think about how does this come to be? You just hear it and you love it. And I became so obsessed with Debbie Gibson, which is very appropriate for this podcast. Yes. Because it was just this young, beautiful woman writing and producing. She produced all of it too. Yeah. yeah. She was kind of the original Taylor Swift in that regard. Yeah. Just I'll tell you something crazy. Uh, so we connect there. I heard Only in My Dreams. Oh. I had the 12 inch. And I heard it and I found out that she was from Long Island. And, you know, I was always a very nerdy child who collected records. And so for me, I knew who songwriters were simply based on the fact that while other kids were deeper in baseball cards, I was deep into records. So I knew the stats on the back and I began to know these names and I started really nerding out. But when I got word, when I read the back of that single, it said written by Debbie Gibson, produced by Debbie Gibson, and we were the same age. My head exploded. And that is somebody whose DMs I have slid into on numerous occasions. And we've had some fun, fun dialogues where I just make sure that she understands how impactful she was for me as a writer, because I didn't think anybody of my generation did it. Now, of course, kids are so prodigious, you know, they have, you know, garage band or whatever on the laptop from birth. But when we were starting out in the 80s, this was unheard of. It was like a kid from Long Island writing and producing her own records. I seriously, she was actually a massive influence for me too, because I really, it made me believe that, you know, this was possible. I I was so obsessed with her that when Electric Youth came out, there was also an Electric Youth perfume. Oh yeah. And my parents are very progressive and my parents are really always been supportive, um, but they would like sometimes try to protect me when I would be really interested in feminine things because they didn't want me to get bullied even more at school, right? So I was like, I was afraid to ask them for the electric youth perfume because I was waiting like, well, if you show up to school smelling like Debbie Gibson, it might make your day a little bit worse, you know? So I, <laughs> I stole the electric youth perfume from Walgreens because I was too scared to ask for it. That's how obsessed I was with Debbie Gibson that I committed my first of like only three crimes in my whole life was for my love of Debbie Gibson. Let's be honest. You understand what your Christmas gift's going to be from this end. <laughs> eBay, eBay works wonders. I can make that happen. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Look, I'm, I'm as pro Deb as it gets and very underrated. And um, can I throw one more writing team into the, the hopper that I think we're all just dying to discuss? Of course. Stock Aitman Waterman. <gasps> Educate me. Educate me. I'm sure I know the songs. I know the songs. I don't know their names. Please educate okay. me. I mean, can can I start? Yes. Okay, go. so Stock Aikman Waterman. And by the way, there is an EP of unreleased Judas Priest music. Judas Priest did do an EP with Stock Aikman Waterman. No. Yeah, I talked to Rob Halford about it. Wow. Justin, you're going to go home tonight. And honestly, this is the thing that's going to impact. And you're going to take this and then impact the next 10 years of pop. Okay, wait, how do I spell their names? Help me. Stocks, S-T-O-C-K, Aitken, A-I-T-K-E-N, Waterman, W-A-T-E-R-M-A-N. And I'm going to name the first single and because it's the punchline and then Lindsay's going to run with it. How about uh, Never Gonna Give You Up by Rick Astley? That's the holy grail. And then we'll work our way down. They pretty much did all 
of the British 80s pop. So the first thing they did actually was You Spin Me Round by Dead or Alive. And did they write all these things or produce? I believe they wrote everything except for the Dead or Alive cut. I thought they just produced. Okay, so then- Pete Waterman produced it. So then, yes, so Dead or Alive, You Spin Me Round. They also did You Think You're a Man by Divine when Divine had a minor hit. Great single. But then- uh, Bananarama, when they kind of went from being more like a post-punk new wave band to being, you know, everything like obviously Venus wasn't written by them, but all, you know, love in the third degree. I heard a rumor that was stock Aiken Waterman. Yes. Then they're the people that they launched Kylie, you know, I should be so lucky was by Kylie yeah. Minogue was them. Rick Astley, never going to give you up and all of his other big hits. Donna Summer, this time it's for real. The that comeback. Is true. Yes. That is true. Wow. Oh, they worked with Debbie Harry as well. Oh, God, Samantha Fox. They did Samantha Fox, you know. All of that. They they had, I believe they had 100, like top 20 or top 40 hits in the UK during that time. But one song goes into the 90s. They have a song that was a big pop hit here. And I think it's been forgotten. And my friend Kimberly was actually in the group. They were called Boy Crazy. That's <laughs> What Love Can Do, which I truly believe might be the lost Stock Aitman Waterman uh, classic. It was a huge pop hit here, but it's a flawless pop song. Wow. Yeah. They they pretty much arc, were the architects of all British pop from the mid, I'd say the mid 80s with starting with Dead or Alive, You Spin Me Round, whether they wrote or produced through to the 90s there's even like a band-aid after do they know it's christmas the band-aid one version there's a band-aid two version that has like kylie and bross and and uh the banana rama girls who i think are the only ones that are on both but i mean it's kind of ridiculous yeah and mel and kim mel and kim respectable and showing out both incredible club records they did songs for sunita they did like but of course you know toy boy toy boy Yes. Yes. Pepsi yes. and Shirley. Yes. Brand new lover by Dead or Alive. Like all just they pretty yeah. much had all their songs kind of had the same beat. That same you, you since Sam, you were talking about tempo. Why don't you educate? Then they pretty much all have like the same drum. Every song on. is sort of it feels like the same programming, the same track and the and the same exact feel. And it's probably all 120. And it's great. <laughs> but I would say it is, definitely feels like the greatest Tranter mega mix ever made. I mean, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. They really did have the sound. In fact, I while we were uh, talking about this, I went on my Spotify because I actually uh, made a playlist called Stock Aitken Waterman Syndrome. See what I did there? Great. And I, I Great. actually, and yeah, they did Step Back in Time by Kylie Minogue. She wants to dance with me. But yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned, I feel like I want to have them on this podcast, all of all three of them, Stock Aitken and Waterman. I want to bring it back over to you, Justin, because, you know, obviously you have your own list of artists. Debbie Gibson, I'm so glad you brought up. But what's another songwriter that, is on your mind. I mean, you know, being as as young as I was then, it was it was definitely more like artist focused. Can we talk about artists? Yeah, yeah. Obviously, I mean, you mentioned Prince. There's a lot of George Michael, there's a lot of artists that wrote their own songs, obviously. I can't be a young queer person and talk about the 80s and not talk about Madonna though. So even though she did co-write, she also took outside songs. She was everything, you know, she was the she's the ultimate pop star. She'll write a song, but if the greatest song ever shows up, she's gonna fucking do it, of course. Like what Madonna did for queer people in the 80s and 90s is like light years ahead. When I was younger, I was much more of a, of a Cyndi Lauper fan. I feel like they were kind of pitted against each other in the media. Yeah, because that's what the media does. I, I was more of a, of, a, of a Cyndi kid when I was young. And then Madonna, the more I realized who I was and I still worship Cyndi and I'm actually very close friends with Cyndi. But Madonna like changed so many people's lives. But for young queer people... 
you know, watching her do everything that she did as a human in the eighties is, is life changing. And I'm sure you've talked about her on this podcast way too many times. So I apologize to bring her up again, but we have a whole Madonna podcast episode that I wish I could have had you on. Madonna is my number one pop artist of all time. She changed my wow. absolute life. I own a desperately seeking Susan jacket. Like Madonna, yes. Madonna is my number one. And I, a lot of the arguments or things you just said, I, I said the same thing about how important she was. And I get really mad that people kind of shit all over her now and did then and still do. I think she's so important. And she did write. And a lot of, uh, to your point, you know, you mentioned Madonna, you mentioned Debbie Gibson. You know, a lot of times people just kind of assume that divas, female pop artists, and we did a really great divas episode. It was a three-part episode with Bright Light, Bright Light that people could also listen to. And Madonna certainly got mentioned on that. But a lot of people kind of assume, like people assume Mariah Carey doesn't write her own songs when she actually does co-write or write. And, you know, there was this whole argument bringing it to modern times where like Damon Albarn, who I love, I'm a big Blur and Gorillaz fan, but he kind of shot all over Taylor Swift and discounted what she does because she co-writes. And that's actually like, you could, co-writing is writing. And, you know, not all of, you know, like I don't think Whitney Houston, for instance, wrote um song maybe, but, you know, Madonna did, definitely Mariah Carey did. You know, she came out in the tail end of the 80s. I'm sure there were a lot of people who didn't really think Debbie Gibson wrote her songs back in the day that they, she had ghostwriters or that yeah. was just a marketing ploy. No one ever thinks about it when it comes to men. I mean, Frank Sinatra never wrote a song. Elvis never wrote a song and nobody fucking cares. Mm-hmm. But for some That's reason, right. when it comes to women, it's like always like, but did they really write or do they have co-writers? I've never written a hit alone. No one ever questions the fact if I'm a songwriter or not. You know what I mean? So it's like, I've never written a hit alone and I would never even fucking try to. That sounds exhausting and boring. That sounds like... I love that. And Madonna, by the way, was massive for me as well, because I was yeah. a jelly bean guy. I had the jelly uh. bean 12 inches. And so when jelly bean was sort of crushing a DJing in Union Square at all the clubs, you know, I was just on the periphery and snuck in a few times. And when I, uh, you know, I was a danceteria kid for a moment. Like I got to experience all this stuff, you know, the tunnel. And, uh, you know, one thing about Madonna is Madonna... It, you know, it's it's easy to say it, but it, when you grew up in it, the combination of the fashion with the with the crafting of the image and the songs, everything that she was the first artist that I really understood had complete a 360 sort of view of the entire landscape. I thought she to me was probably the most iconic artist of the 80s. I put her up there. It's Madonna and Prince at the end of the day for me. I would agree. And they did a song together. They did love song. Was it on Like a Prayer, the song Love Song? I think so, yeah. Yeah. And that was a co-write between the two of them. Since we're talking about like female artists who are badass and write songs, I do want to say probably what I would put as one of the greatest debut albums of all time is the first album by The Pretenders. And Chrissy Hine wrote every song on that, most most on her own and a few co-writes. But when you're talking about like, you know, Brass and Pocket, you know, when you're talking about Private Life, Mystery Achievement, Precious. Stop your sobbing. Stop Your Sobbing was written by Ray Davies. Yeah, it's a cover, but the King, the, the King's cover, but it, they're just the... Uh, if we do the totally 60s podcast about songwriters, Ray Davies will be on there. Here's the thing, and you know, and, and then, you know, she loses two guys in the band, Yeah, you know, and, and it's just her and Martin, and they come back with that record, Middle of the Road, and uh, what's 2,000 Miles? I mean, 
That's the greatest Christmas song ever. Definitely. You know? Besides Band-Aids 2, do they know it's Christmas produced by Stock Aikman Waterman? I would agree with yes, you. Yes, yes. Chrissy's the coolest ever. I I I've I've never met Chrissy Hine, but you know, I would I would obviously drop to my knees and 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 celebrate her for who she is. Well, I like that, you know, we started off talking about kind of more the behind the scenes people, kind of like what you guys do. And there's a couple I just wanted to mention real quick. Desmond Child, of course. Oh my god. Every- you know, I'm eight. such an asshole for not mentioning Desmond Child. You are not an asshole, but we have a lot to cover. But you know, I actually know. thought one of you would bring Desmond. That's why I didn't drop it because I was like, oh, it's so on the nose. Everyone knows that Desmond's a king. I talked a lot, a bit about how there were like you know, kind of these hard rock or you know, bands that started maybe later in their career having outside songwriters collaborate with them. And Aerosmith had a whole, you know, one of the great, actually we have, you know, I'm I'm talking about all the episodes we had, we had with Michael DeBar an episode called the comebacks and, you know, comeback artists of the eighties and Aerosmith heart 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 was in there. And absolutely Aerosmith was in there. And yes. And yes, that's a good one. I don't know if we talked about that one, but Aerosmith obviously tops the list and, you know, do looks like a lady and angel was Desmond child. John Bon Jovi's You Give Love a Bad Name, Live Out a Prayer, Bad Medicine. Alice Cooper had a comeback in the 80s with Poison and Better Nails. That was also Desmond Child. Joan Jett, another awesome, you know, woman. Hate Myself for Loving You was Desmond Child. So I definitely wanted to mention him. And I also wanted to mention, just because we're going, you know, obviously I have a real fondness for this kind of like bombastic rock. Jim Steinman. Can we talk about Jim Steinman? A lot of people know more from the 70s. Bad Out of Hell, Meatloaf was 1977. But he, these are some of the songs he wrote in the 80s or co-wrote. Okay, obviously, Total Clips of the Heart and from <laughs> Footloose, Holding Out for Hero by Bonnie Tyler. Aero Supplies, Making Love Out of Nothing at All. He did like, you know, very bombastic, theatrical, Wagnerian, you know. He called himself the Lord of Excess. If you went on his website, <laughs> he was called that. So it's not, he was proud of that. There's no diss to it. There was nothing subtle about him at all. He actually had a band in the 80s that was called uh, Pandora's Box, and they originally did It's All Coming Back to Me Now, which was a you mm-hmm. know big hit for Celine and for, uh, mm-hmm. I believe, Meatloaf recorded it as well. But the Streets of Fire soundtrack was him. He had a real signature sound. But what some people don't realize is I also am like a – people realize I'm kind of like a post-punk goth girl. We did a goth episode on uh, of Totally 80s as well. But Sisters of Mercy – did three songs with Jim Simon, the Sisters of did Mercy. Did not know that. No way. When I tell you this, it'll make sense. Wow. Songs written or co-written by Jim Steinman that were Sisters of Mercy songs. This corrosion is Jim Steinman. Wow. Jim Steinman. Makes sense, right? It's got like the choir, the bombast. It's all like evangelical. Uh, Dominion Mother Rusher was also by him and more, which was 1990. But we'll just you know, kind of, sh- you know, shelve it into the uh, tail end of the 80s. Three Sisters of Mercy songs, probably their biggest songs, especially this Corrosion. That wow. was Jim Steinman. That's wow. like stuck in so many boxes. It's like a vet. It's not even a Venn diagram. It's just like a circle <laughs> yeah. of Jim Steinman and Sisters of Mercy. So I just definitely wanted to make sure I mentioned him. And he was an artist of his own, right, too. He, he recorded his own materials. In fact, I believe Back for Good was supposed to be his album. Back for Good was supposed to be a meatloaf record. And they had a falling out or whatever. So he just recorded the songs himself. His house was just for sale. They sold his estate. It's right by me. I'm in I'm in uh, I'm in Westchester, New York, and I believe he's in Ridgefield, too, about two towns away. They just sold his estate, and it was everything oh as is. It was everything as is in the house. That's like my dream estate sale. Why wasn't I there? Oh my god, I would just move in. 
It was pretty cool. I, that was oh a nice little, nice little grab in the paper for me. I was very excited. Oh my God. So yeah, yeah. Sisters of Mercy, Jim Steinman, that happened. That was a thing in the eighties because anything could happen in the eighties. But I, I do kind of want to end this by talking about the fact that while there were all these, you know, great behind the scenes songwriters, they're, you know, like Prince, obviously who wrote for other people like mm-hmm. Sinead O'Connor and the family, nothing even cares to you, Bangles, Manic Monday, Neon Telephone by the three o'clock. Just going to put that out there. One of his. And we have a whole Prince Protégés episode that kind of goes into the stuff he wrote for other people that people should listen to on Totally 80s. Love a three o'clock reference. I'm a huge I try. Fan. I'm from L.A. Great. I got to bring it up. But Very cool. what are some, you know, I'd like for you guys to uh, both of you to talk about artists who wrote their own songs and maybe in the case of someone like uh, Prince wrote for other people as well. But what are like the great singer songwriters of the eighties for you? We've mentioned a few already, but let's keep going in that direction. I mean, it's a great question. Cause when you think about singer songwriters, you don't really necessarily think of the eighties, even though of course there are many. So it's right off the top of my head. I mean, we've, we've mentioned Prince many times. Billy Joel, Tom Petty, uh, a couple that come George Michael, George Michael wrote all of oh my- stuff. George Michael. There you go. That's the fucking best ever. I mean, the first album alone is a literal masterpiece. And I liked his stuff he did with Wham as well. We're big Wham UK fans. On Wham UK, end. fantastic. That was the best album by Wham. But, you know, when they were all, when he was rapping. But yeah, yeah I believe, and yeah, I think Faith won the Grammy for album of the year and he wrote every single song on that, to, as far as I know. He's not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame either. I've I've advocated that. I have to tell you something. He is, George Michael to me, is probably the greatest male, like straight ahead pop artist of my lifetime. Wow. Everything with George Michael was incredible for me. Like starting with Wham UK, like, you know, it was a 82, 83. For that run straight through the decade, you know, the crafting was at such another level. He could sing. It was just a different kind of pop star, you know, and he was soulful and he messed around with Motown stuff. Like all the influences were all over the place. He was ridiculously badass. Like, And he was really fucking hot. <laughs> it helps. He was a babe. And I got to tell you something like, you know, Ridgely was a good looking guy, too. They figured that thing out. And I don't I still don't really understand what Ridgely did or didn't do in the band. But he looked good. So that worked. I don't know if any of either of you know this. I have heard that I've read this and I'd love to read Andrew Ridgely's book. Actually, he he put out a book, too, that I haven't had a chance to read. But uh, supposedly, you know, obviously, Wham had three albums and the last one was Edge of Heaven. And then but it already it, the groundwork was already being well laid for George Michael to have, you know, his solo career. And that kind of started with Careless Whisper, which was very I think that was even built as like Wham featuring George Michael or something that kind of brought that up. So. I've read because I've seen the songwriting credit and it says Michael Ridgely on it. And that was probably Wham's biggest chart, international chart hit. I've read that George Michael put that, put Ridgely on, like to be nice and also to sort of kind of set Ridgely up for life because he knew, you know, that eventually he was going to, you know, leave the band and go on his own. And that, you know, they were like best mates and continue to be good mates even after the band broke up i've seen interviews originally he seems awesome has he has he ever confirmed that he wrote that song or not i don't remember he just sort of there he was talking about george's passing and i watched a bunch of bbc interviews i thought he was amazing he had such a great energy so it's fantastic and he was married to one of the girls from bananarama and I say Bananarama because I grew up in L.A. with K-Rock, and that's how Richard Blade says it. I'm not trying to be pretentious. Bananarama. The first time I ever heard about Bananarama or Bananarama 
was from Richard Blade. And the name, the, the, the British pronunciation just stuck. What could I say? It was the greatest decade ever. You know, musically for me, as a writer, at least, I fused tons of 70s elements and tons of 80s elements. There's probably at the bed of what I do. And then pull from other decades, obviously, as needed. But those are really, they do two different things craft-wise. But God, man, the 80s, the pop in the 80s, it was the pop mecca. You know, I sit at home at night. I'm usually high. And I'm just sitting there and on loop, I go style council and the blow monkeys into, you know, Ooh, you mentioned Paul Weller. Yeah. I mean, the jam to style council, like one of the greatest pivots I've ever seen. Anybody who made that pivot of that sort of from, you know, that, that punk aesthetic straight into that jazz influence, super pop, Joe Jackson, Paul Weller, Elvis Costello, all did the same track. We're the you same know? person. I was about to say, well, some other British songwriters and I have a list. Elvis Costello's on there. Joe Jackson, Elvis Costello kind of get mentioned in the same breath. A lot of the times so they were kind of doing that, you know, smart, cerebral singer songwriter thing. But one songwriting duo that were known as a songwriting duo, Rolling Stone actually called them the new Lennon McCartney of their day. And I do believe that came back to bite them in the ass of it. Cause if you call anyone like the new Beatles or whatever, it's going to like hurt you, but different in Tilbrook from squeeze. Oh, amazing. And I'd also say he's not British. He's from New Zealand, but Neil Finn from Crowded House and Split Ends. Yes. Amazing. Absolutely. But I mean, when you look at like the the songs that Squeeze did or that Crowded House and definitely Split Ends, although they weren't known as well here. I mean, it's pretty phenomenal. And actually what's kind of funny is, as you know, Christine McVie recently passed and all of the people from Fleetwood Mac were amazing songs in the 80s. Being a child of the 80s, my favorite album by Fleetwood Mac is Mirage. And Hold Me was co-written by the late Christine McVie. Incredible single. Absolutely. When Neil Finn was a touring member of Fleetwood Mac in 2018, after Lindsey Buckingham acrimoniously left the band, they each got, uh, and Mike Campbell from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, and I want to give him a shout too, because Mm -hmm. he co-wrote a lot of big Tom Petty hits. Amazing. Uh, They were in the lineup. And they each got a little moment, like in the case of uh, for Mike Campbell, there was Free Fallen. um, And obviously, Tom Petty had a lot of ties to Fleetwood Mac and to Stevie Nicks. But an amazing moment was when Stevie Nicks and Neil Finn would do Don't Dream It's Over by Crowded House. But early in the tour, they also gave him a moment where he got to do uh, I Got You by Split Ends as one of his solo moments. And. I guess it didn't go over that well with the Fleetwood Mac audience because by the time they came to the forum here in LA, I was like pretty, I was practically like holding up like a sign, like, I got you, play, I got you. I was so, I'd seen it on YouTube. I was so pumped to see Fleetwood Mac and Neil Finn do I Got You. And it was like already off the set list at that point. But anyway, it's on YouTube. I got you. Let me drop this. I'm going to drop like a heater. And Justin, I don't know where you sit on this because I don't know if this ever entered your consciousness, but it's the, to me, the seminal record of eighties pop and the most slept on is Scritty Politti, but it's like 85. Oh my God. Yes. I came here to apparently just be educated today. No, I have we're no gonna let you fucking have the- clue what that is. But this yeah. is a nerd fest. Oh my gosh. David Gampson, David Gampson produced. Are you talking about A Perfect Way by Scooty Politti? And Woodbees, Aretha Franklin. So I love Scooty Politti, and I'm really happy you mentioned that because I wouldn't have thought to mention Green. Did Green write that? Yes, Green, Green did. And everything actually that Scooty Politti have done in more recent times in like the 90s and 2000s has been pretty great. Like they had a song called like Black Beer, Brown Bread or something like an album. I mean, everything that they do is great. 
Squiddy Politi about 10 or so years ago played the Roxy. And I was very excited. And, you know, because they I don't think they'd played America maybe ever or at least yeah. in like 30 years or something. So I went, I was in the front row. They came out and Green went up to the mic. They hadn't played yet. Like they came out, everyone cheered. And he goes, just so you know, we're not going to do a perfect way tonight. You would have been so pissed. They, he just was like, we're not going to do our biggest hit. <laughs> he was like, disclaimer. He did do would-be's though. I mean, let me just say one thing. Okay. The artist that doesn't play their hits, I will never back ever again. I'm never going to talk about Scritti Politi ever again after Aww, this moment. They're dead bad. to me. They're dead to me. It's no longer an iconic record. It's just sort of a passing ship in them. They did, he did Boom, There She Was, and he did uh, he did Woodby. So, like, I was still happy, but I was kind of like, what the Boom, fuck? There She Was is a jam. The fashion is pretty amazing. This yeah. triangle hat. Yeah, he was like this post-punk kid, post-punk kid who was on, I want to say, like 480 or Rough Trade. I think he was on Rough Trade. Rough and he Trade, all yeah. this really political stuff. <laughs> and then suddenly, five years into it, he makes, like, the pop opus it was prince's favorite record by the way that i believe oh. was like prince's favorite i thought prince was a massive fan i'm gonna listen to it on the way to the studio i can't wait another group like squiddy politi that had a similar kind of trajectory of starting off kind of more weird and underground than becoming like a massive pop artist and also i think we should give a shout out to our the thompson twins Yes. Tom Bailey can write a song. And I think people forget how big they were. There was a time when they just had an unstoppable run of top 10 hits. Hold Me Now, You Take Me Up, Doctor, Doctor, The Gap, The List Goes On, you know, Lay Your Hands On Me, Love On Your Side, you know, Lies, so many bops. And I think people kind of forget about, and kind of look at them maybe because it was like they had a very kind of dated image or it's like ha ha they're not really twins and their last name isn't thompson isn't that funny it's like if you have a name like scritti politi or kaja gugu or uh thompson twins people just like think you're a novelty band but like god that he wrote some he was an incredible writer i would say i, I will say when i is like in college in the late 90s early 2000s thompson twins were considered like hipster gold really so wow. like it was Yay. like all the, I went to Berkeley College of Music, like all of us assholes. And um, <laughs> it all the hipster kids would just endlessly talk about the Thompson twins. Like they were when they were trying to like be the coolest of the cool when they weren't talking about jazz. They were talking about the Thompson twins. Yeah, that makes me happy to hear that, actually. Yeah. History is kind to people. You know who history hasn't been as kind to who deserves the same sort of hipster accolade would be Howard Jones. Oh, my God. How Who's Howard brought, Jones? Who's Howard Jones? Justin, no. Listen, I, I'm, showing my, I'm showing my age. <laughs> well, I'm going to show my age. Howard Jones is the first concert I was allowed to go to without parental yeah. supervision. You can figure out the math. Things can only get better. That's your song. You know things can only get what better. What is Love was his biggest hit. I would actually say New Song is my favorite hit by him. God, he wrote some New great- Song is my favorite, too. He wrote some great songs. And yeah. uh, maybe, again, sort of, oh, the best moment in Grammy history, literally, I've written about this, I've interviewed Howard Jones about this, was the Synthesizer Showdown of 1985. They wanted to show that the Synthesizer was like the hot new future. So they had the old guard and the new guard. So they the old guard was represented by Herbie Hancock and Stevie Wonder. And the new guard was Thomas Dolby, who we should also give a I shout out. I knew you were going to say Dolby. I and, knew you were going to say And Howard that. Jones. And Thomas Dolby was wearing like a like a kind of like weird, like Al Sharpton, Albert Einstein, like fright, sort of Amadeus wig. 
And they just were like in this, you know, octagon. Did you just really like, say Al Sharpton, Albert Einstein? Because that's the coolest thing. I've you ever know, just heard. like it was like a gray kind of like woolly kind of like electric shocked wig. The I guess owls. visuals embedded in my to, brain. Yeah. Double Al. Double Al. Yeah. And they all were like in this octagon, you know, with their synthesizers and their talk boxes, just like jamming on synthesizers. And it blew my fucking mind. And I love Howard Jones, so I'm really glad you brought him up. I do want to bring up a couple just real quick, and then I want to bring it over to Justin, because I want to get educated. Justin, we come from all different perspectives. But if we're talking about, like, artists, British artists, a lot of the artists that we've kind of talked about have been British in the last few minutes. I mean, you mentioned Smiths very early on, uh, Sam, and the Morrissey Marr, that's a great, you know, they were a Lennon McCartney post-punk. Robert Smith, enough said, my favorite band of all time is The Cure. Robert Smith has written... People think of him as kind of gloomy and goth, but he's written a lot of bops like Friday I'm in Love and Love Song and yep. you know, uh, Just Like Heaven. So Lionel Richie, to go back to the the U.S., I mean, he co-wrote We Are the World. He co-wrote songs. He wrote songs for Kenny Loggins and he wrote songs, many, many bops for himself. He just got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And uh, so, yeah, I could go on and on, but just I want to bring it over to you and, you know, have you maybe sort of close us out with some of your 80s artists that are your touchstones. Um, I mean, Tina Turner is is massive to me. Obviously, she's many decades, but the 80s Tina Turner as a kid, I just thought was like the coolest human being alive. And then her in Mad Max, it just got even more cooler <laughs> and even more fabulous. It was all the ones who looked awesome. I like people who look awesome still, but when you're young, especially, it's like if they look... So Prince, Tina, Cindy, Madonna, but we've talked about this before, Lindsay, it's like if if uh, if you weren't a woman, I wasn't really interested. And Prince basically was a woman, <laughs> so, <laughs> so it it worked for me. And also Prince's songs being like so Prince being so hyper feminine visually mm -hmm. and writing such sexual songs, I didn't understand why that was speaking to me as a baby gay, but it really was. It really was. I love that slogan. If you're not a woman, I'm not interested. I'm just not, you know, I've said. I also like baby gay. Like, yeah. you know, that's my new favorite MC. <laughs> and then my brothers, I'm the youngest of, of three, uh, of, of four. There's four of us. There's three older than me. They were, it was like very divided between like my youngest in age. He's, I'm the youngest one, but the youngest, closest to me in age. He was only, it's all like the new early, early hip hop was all he cared about. And then my other brothers were like strict Metallica ACDC, mm. like strict. And there was like a war of like my other brothers being like 10 years older than me and my closest in age of Jeremy being a, I was obsessed with like Debbie Gibson and Cindy and Madonna. He liked hip hop. And my brothers thought that we were both losers because it wasn't metal. And if it wasn't metal, then we should just stop listening. To where, did, where did you grow up? I grew up in the Midwest in Chicago. Oh, got it. Okay. Excellent. Awesome. Yeah. We haven't really talked about, you know, metal does. I think the only metal we've really mentioned on this podcast is me saying that Judas Priest made a lost unreleased album with Stock Aiken Waterman. <laughs> but, you know, certainly, you know, when you look at Guns N' Roses or something, there's great people don't really I maybe think of metal artists as being like great songwriters, per se. They think it's kind of loud and noisy, but I would definitely put Guns N' Roses in there. I would put Nikki Six in there. Nikki Six, he wrote like all of the Motley Crue songs. Mutt Lang, Mutt, Mutt Lang. Lang. Oh God, yeah. Come on, De guys. And I think one of the greatest hard rock songs of all time is Photographed by Def Leppard. And Bringing on the Heartache was covered by Mariah Carey. So that kind of wraps it together. And then 
this is not metal, but I just feel like, I feel like this entire podcast, we're like, how have we not talked about this person yet? How have we not talked about this person yet? I have to mention Daryl Hall and John Oates. Oh, yeah. Just saw them live at the Bull. Well, I guess it's a year ago now at this point, but yeah. Give me, give me the review. Give me the review. It was fucking fantastic. It was awesome. so amazing. My, it's, my dad is a huge, like super duper music fan, like an encyclopedia. And my mom is not as much. And her one claim to fame is that like, she was the one who was like, I think this band Hall and Oates is really good. And he was like, oh, they're cheesy. This was when they first <laughs> came out. And then they went and saw the live show. And now my dad is way more obsessed than she ever was. And <laughs> Daryl's house, do you know the show Daryl's house? Yeah. Of course. My dad literally will just listen to Daryl's house episodes on YouTube at like volume a million. And we just like all have to like, it act like it's like dinner music where like you listen to their conversations. It's just like endless. So it's, it was, it was a great fucking show. It was a great show. I do want to say, Justin, since you like things looking fabulous, you need to look at the cover if you don't haven't already seen it of their self-titled album from the seventies known as the silver album, because they opened for Harold Holland Oates opened for like one show. And I, I think Cleveland, but somewhere in the Midwest for David Bowie on his Ziggy Stardust tour. No yeah. way. Yes. I've interviewed them about that. So they were like completely, as you would expect, blown away by what they saw. They did, you know, they actually went in the audience to watch his set. And then the I the name escapes me, but the makeup artist who created Bowie's look for that era. Pierre. Like, Pierre okay, LaRoche. So, yeah. Thank you. I'm glad you, yeah, you're educated us. <laughs> so Pierre LaRoche, who created that look, ended up doing their makeup for Hall and Oates makeup for that album cover. Wow. And I've talked to both John Oates and Daryl Hall and they're like the only album cover we ever get asked about is this because they're full on wearing like slash blush with this glam look that, you know, people do not, and this is 70s, of course, that people do not associate with Hall and Oates who like a decade later would be just wearing the kind of like private eyes trench coats and the like yeah. kind of like 50s hair. But since you like fabulous looks, just I want you to look at that. There's an amazing interview with Whitney Houston. Um, in like, I want to say the late 90s or early 2000s. And I care who's interviewing her, but they're asking her, like they're showing her pictures from the 80s. Like, tell me the inspiration behind this look and this look. Because you think of Whitney as such, you know, you think of like the bodyguard era when she's more like stripped down and just singing better than anyone who ever sang. And you forget, like that woman had some looks, some fashion (laughs) in the 80s. And they're like, can you explain the inspiration behind this? And she's like, it was the 80s. Why are you even asking me? It like, was that's the just, 80s. That's just how we looked. Like, what What a dumb question. Like, she's being polite to the interviewer, but just like, what do you mean? What was the, in- there was no inspiration. That's just how people looked. Like, <laughs> To wrap this up, you know, is there any other artists we haven't mentioned? Or do you guys want to talk about, you know, what you're working on? I know you got a lot of cool stuff going on, uh, Justin. You're working on like the Pink, la- pink Ladies, which is, uh, reference to Greece, which is kind of late seventies, early eighties. Ever, what are? How shall we wrap this up? Because I feel like we could go on for multiple episodes of this. Conference. I just think Justin should talk because I monopolize too much. It's his time. No, please. Well, you, I was. I, there was a lot for me to learn here. If, if we, we should do a nineties episode together, Sam, and then I can be, I can be the educator. <laughs> Smash mouth. <laughs> Fuck you. No. Well, that is a great song, though. That is a great song, but. Um, well, it really have to be women of the 90s because I know nothing about anything men have done ever. Oh my God, it's we not... have to do this. We have to do totally 90s podcast. I'm completely down for it. Um, two things I want to talk about. One is we just mentioned the Bengals really quickly in terms of Prince writing Manic Monday. The Bengals 
I was just obsessed with and mesmerized by. Top five favorite bands of the, of, of, certainly top five favorite uh, groups of that era. Wow. For me, the Bengals were it. I was um, in the 90s obsessed with the RuPaul talk show on VH1. And she had, um, Ru had Susanna Hoff on and referenced, and, you know, RuPaul, by the way, is knows more about songwriters than I do. Like RuPaul's songwriter knowledge is like deep. Oh my God, RuPaul, if you're listening, please come on this show. Like deep knowledge. And and Rue was talking to Susanna Hoffs about Eternal Flame. It was like, oh, Billy Steinberg, Billy Steinberg, you know, blah, 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 blah. And she's like, no, I wrote it too. And he, and Rue literally is like, like confronts her. It's like, did you really though? <gasps> it's, it's really, so that was a moment that really stuck out for me too. The first memory I have of like this, like conflict of like mm. songwriter versus pop star and pop mm. star versus songwriter. But the Bengals, I was really obsessed with as a kid. And then, Going to talk about what you mentioned, Pink Ladies, it was a really interesting thing doing. So, Sam, I'm doing the Rise of the Pink Ladies, which is the uh, prequel to Grease. It's a TV series. So, uh, oh my gosh, 30 know, right? si- sign me up. It, it's That's coming out awesome. It comes out in the new year on Paramount Plus, and it's 30 original songs for season one. And we were trying to, like, it was a really interesting way to, like, think about decades of music because. Obviously, this was like a late 70s, almost 80s version of what the 50s was, the original Greece that we all know and love, especially the songs that were written for the movie, because there was the musical a couple of years before the stage musical. The ones that are from the movie are like, you know, Greece is the word is just a fucking straight up like late 70s disco song. It's not even so that that sort of like trying to like grasp our like minds around like what do Okay, so the original Grease is like a late 70s version of the 50s. Do we do like the 2003 version of the 50s? But then do we also incorporate late 70s? And then there's Grease 2. Oh, are- yes. You, 1982. You know how I yep. feel about Grease 2. Grease yep. 2, I feel... I mean, I'll, it's quite possible that Rise of the Pink Ladies will soon become my favorite Grease at the moment, yeah. Grease yes. 2 is, I consider the superior Grease. All right, so you'll be really happy. We've started talking about season two already a little bit, and we're going to do a nice, in, in, in the episode one of season two, there's going to be a real tribute. There's a little tribute to, to Grease 2 um, in the last episode of season one, but we're going to do a more appropriate, like a, a real dedicated tribute to it. But Oh, um, let's do it for our country. I will be your girl for all seasons. <laughs> I will be your... What would they say if they knew it was Michael? Oh my yeah. God, I, my mind is so blown. I cannot it's wait. It's been, it was such an interesting thing to like really digest, like like spending this hour plus talking about the 80s, like really thinking about like how these different decades and eras with the stamps that they leave on music and the stamps that they leave on culture. And then me trying to like wrap my head around such a beloved, a beloved property, a beloved piece of art that's like, a, it's, it's a it's a it's it's a it's a it's an era on top of an era inside of an era inspired by an era. It's really <laughs> it's it's really crazy to 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 think about how we obsess over music in these ten year blocks, decade by decade. I cannot wait, and I've really enjoyed obsessing over this decade and a little bits of the '90s as well with both of you. Congratulations to everything you go going on. Congratulations, Sam, on your book release, Twenty One Hit Wonder. Flopping yes. at the top of the charts. Uh, Justin, I'll have you back on for totally 90s. I'll set up a meeting. My people will talk to your people. That needs to happen. 
Thank you both. A special, special thanks to my very talented and prolific guests, Justin Tranter and Sam Hollander. Love you guys. Love everyone out there for listening. Thanks for listening. Remember to give Totally 80s a rate and review on your favorite podcast platform, and I'll catch you next time. This was Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Totally 80s. And please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Until our next episode, catch you on the flip side. Bye.